0: So let me pray for us, and uh, we're going to look at this passage together. God, I pray that you would come and send your spirit to help us understand your word, um, that you might apply it to our hearts tonight. Uh, We need a word from you. They don't uh, need words from me. They need to hear from you. And so I pray that you would do that uh, in our midst. I pray also and echo the prayers of John for our country tonight. Uh, Tonight, uh, we will elect or re-elect a ruler of our country, but we are secure and confident that the ruler of this world is sitting on the throne of heaven right now. And there's nothing that can change that. And that gives us great comfort and security. And um, and so we pray to you. And we ask for you to rule and overrule uh, this land. We love you and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Luke chapter 18. If you have a Bible that you want to turn to, that's great. If not, uh, up on the screen will be just fine. Uh, beginning in verse 9. He, and that's Jesus... And I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is God's word. Let's give our attention to it. Um, I will be very forthright and quick to say that I struggled, I struggled a lot with this passage and with preparing for this talk tonight. Um, because it's really, it's a, it's a very familiar passage to many of us in this room. And even if, you know, if you're not even in Christian circles, there's kind of this, this is like the sinner's prayer. I mean, this is a very common kind of prayer that the tax collector gives out here. And I struggled with what to do in the midst of a passage that is so familiar, and I found myself making it just much more complicated than it actually is. And I was kind of getting into the intricacies and all these things, and I was wanting to be really cute and novel with it. And um, that led me to about noon today, <laughs> calling like all my pastor friends. And I was like, uh, someone help me. I don't really know what to say tonight. <laughs> and um, Ricky, who's the pastor of uh, River Oaks, a church here in town that supports us... Um, I called him, I said, man, I'm, I'm doing the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, can you help me? He said, well, um, what does it mean to you? How have you struggled with self-righteousness um, over the past six months? And so uh, I started thinking, and well, I got to this morning. And then I realized I had an example, and uh, so we're going to start there. So uh, this morning, as I think about my own self-righteousness... Um, I was sitting at Starbucks, preparing, but not really preparing, I was very frustrated, and uh, I sat there and I had just voted and I came back and I was sitting there in my chair with my I voted sticker on, and I proceeded to look at all of the people in line and pass judgment on them whether or not they had a sticker on, (laughs) Um, right, it sounds ridiculous and I realize it is, as it's coming out of my mouth. Um, but, like, I was actually feeling in some way, very strange way, superior to the people who didn't have a sticker on. Right. Um, and that's just kind of an intro to say this. That when we think about this parable, when we think about the idea of, of being self-righteous, that it is way, 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 way more practical and related to our day-to-day life than most of us probably think. That we tend to think of self-righteousness as being this very kind of precise, precise theological idea that, you know, only certain people do at certain times and all this. But, y'all, it is, it's the stuff of everyday life. For I would, I would actually go on to say all of us in here. Now, we do it in different ways and for different reasons, but self-righteousness is more of a reality than we usually think. But what is also true is that God's gift of love for us through Jesus addresses that self-righteousness and thus also matters to us more every day than we think. Okay, so both of those are true at the same time. That self-righteousness is a problem for us, but also that the gospel of Jesus addresses that. And the way that I want us to begin to see that this is a very day-to-day problem for us is that let's look at this, the two kind of the characters in this story. And see who might that be in our day and age. So let's talk about this Pharisee and tax collector first tonight. Um, the Pharisee is—he's uh, a very religious person. Okay, he's a very religious person. We've talked about him uh, before at Ruf, and uh, but I'll—I'll I'll give some more clues as to what a Pharisee is like. They were known uh, in that day for again being very religious. They were very scrupulous about keeping the law, the Jewish law, uh, the kind of the religious law. And in fact they were so concerned and scrupulous about keeping that law that they would, um, they would add additional laws like layers of additional laws around the, the original law so that they could be sure never actually violate the real law. okay So that may look like uh, in the Old Testament there was a, a law of uh, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Okay, it's a great law. It still applies to us in, in the sense that um, we are to rest and God calls us to rest from our normal labors. But what the Pharisees would do is they would add all of these other things to it, kind of like uh, cushions around it. And they may violate those, but they're never actually going to get to the law. And so in, in, in so doing, they were providing a way of salvation. And if they never broke the law, then they could consider themselves right or righteous. Okay, so um, those of us who maybe kind of grew up around Christianity or in the church, we tend to think of Pharisees as bad people. Like, and we kind of, there's this low-level hatred for them, or like they're the easy targets, but they were very respected in their day. Like, super respected. These were the people that everyone in kind of religious circles, they looked up to them. Okay, we've lost a little bit of that. Um, but let's try to figure out who this might be in our day and age. Who, who might kind of fit this mold? Well, you're going to have to be a good person. Right? The Pharisees, I mean, they were good people. They weren't just out kind of living these uh, lives of wanton craziness. They weren't um, you know, living it up on the weekend sort of things. That, that wasn't their gig. Uh, they were more concerned with doing everything right. So they were good people. They were well-dressed and respected. Maybe uh, in our day, uh, it's someone who... Has self proclaimed never uh, taken a drink of alcohol, or maybe is a virgin, or maybe um, someone who has like five quiet times a week, or who is evangelizing to multiple times, multiple people several times a week, or maybe who hasn't missed church in a long time or was kind of the star of your youth group, or who maybe went on a mission trip this past summer or is really philanthropically involved here in Tulsa or back at home or something. Maybe it's someone who went to Christian school. And in some way, through these things that that you or others around you or society, Christian subculture, something has said, this is what makes you a good person. In some way, there begins to... Uh, Emerge from these things a picture of someone who is just really, really good and really upright in the way that they live. Maybe to bring it home a little bit closer, maybe it's actually a lot of us in here, right? I mean, after all, you're in college and you're doing something like RUF, and you're at a kind of a Christian meeting, so that means you're not, necess- you know, you're not partying right now, at least. Um, Uh, Maybe it's someone on ministry team. Maybe it's uh, one of us in here who's an ordained minister in the PCA. Uh, You know, what I want us to see is that the more we kind of begin to emerge through this, that this idea of Phariseeism is very close, and it's actually within a lot of us in here. Um, And we have to see that if we're ever going to see what's going on in this passage. But secondly, there's this other figure. There's this tax collector. Now, he was very easily and readily identified as, uh, as like the schmuck of that society. And that's why Jesus uses, I mean, he's at both ends of the spectrum here. Kind of the most righteous, the most, uh, the best person. And then he's at the opposite end saying, "And eh, you got the tax collector. Um, now, why were they so hated? A lot of you all uh, may know this. Um, but they were hated because the Roman government, they were Jews who were hired by the Roman government. So that already strike one, they're a traitor on their own people. And the Roman government would uh, send them out to collect taxes, and they would kind of um, accept, the tax collectors would put up a bid, like, hey, I'm going to go collect these taxes, and I'm only going to charge the government this much. And so they'd do this, and so they'd go out there, and as the the tax collectors were gathering taxes from the people, they would gather, gather over and above what the people owed. And so when they came back, they would hand the Roman government their due or the bid with the amount they agreed upon, and they would pocket the rest. And this is just how it was, and people knew that. And so people hated tax collectors. They really, really did hate them. And in addition to that, they were out kind of mingling among uh, the Gentiles and the, the downcasts of society. And so that made them unclean. So if you're a Jewish person and you're mingling with unclean people, then you become kind of religiously dirty also. Okay, so there are several things going against him. Now imagine this scenario where um, this man is walking up to the temple to pray also. Now you have the Pharisee, and it's like, well, that of course he's going to go pray. That's what the Pharisees do. They pray. They go up there to pray. But imagine this man who is a nobody. He's worse than a nobody. He's just somebody that people hate. And he is walking up to this temple... Imagine thinking, I don't belong here. What am I going to pray? Uh, My people hate me. God, do you hate me? I wonder if he's going to hear me. He's unclean. He's an outcast. So in our day, uh, to uh, to our group in here, us good Pharisees, um, this is probably going to be the drunk. This is going to be the slut. This is going to be the person who you look at and you just kind of feel good about yourself because you know them and you know what they do. Uh, it's going to be the guy or the girl with loose morals or the gossip or um, someone who cheats or parties, the misfit, the outcast, the one who smells weird. Um, in some ways, an outsider is awkward, is judged or unwanted. Um <clears throat> Now, we all know people like that. We know people who are awkward. We know people who—oh, um, sorry, chance—I forget. You hate that word. <laughs> um, she has like a, a seriously—I should. She has a stronger version of that word. I'm sorry. Um, it's like, man, I really didn't think anything was that funny. But uh, yeah, right. So my bad. Um, <laughs> it, it's people that. Um, You get it, right? The tax collectors are those people. They're the people who religious people would very easily and readily look down upon. Now, the tricky thing is is that if you see these two people, if if we were to see these two people together at a party, um, every single one of us, uh, most of us, would be drawn to go talk to the Pharisee. Okay? And we, we have to understand that, but... Like that's who you would kind of naturally gravitate toward because they appear better and they're going to make you feel better about yourselves. And after all, when your friends see you talking to people, you don't want them to see you talking to to him or her. You want them to see you talking to him or her. They're the people who people liked and they gravitated to. And instinctively, when you would look at these two people, you would look at the Pharisee and say, oh, that person is righteous. And you would look at the tax collector and you would say, obviously, that person is not righteous. Okay? So what's so strange about this is that as they go up to the temple to pray, which actually is... um, I don't know if you have noticed, but out here on this sign, uh, there's a thing that's starting up on Sunday nights. It's like an Anglican prayer service. What that actually means is it's actually more like a worship service. They just call it a prayer service. And that's what this word pray in this passage means. It's, it's most likely one of the twice a day atonement services where people would go up the temple and the priest would sacrifice an animal and, and put its blood on the altar to show that God was accepting this sacrifice for people's sins. And so people would go up and they would be a part of that ceremony. And they would thank God that this atonement or this payment was made to cover their sin. And so here are these two people walking up to to the altar, to the temple to pray or to worship. We're going to talk about what they do and what they say in just a minute. But what's so strange about this and about self-righteousness Is that as we see it on paper, you know, as we kind of read about this parable, we look at it and it's just like, oh, well, that guy's a jerk. Like he's he's not very nice. And and some of us know self-righteous people around us and and we know that they're just not very nice. And we really don't like to be around them all that much in real life because of the way they are, even though we really don't want to be like a tax collector. But what I want us to see, it's weird is that there's actually there's an attraction. About self righteousness that we don't catch, that is very much there and is very much why most of us in here struggle with this on a day to day basis. But it's true that that attractiveness is also very destructive. So, what's so attractive and destructive about it? Um, The answer comes in looking at the passage. In verse 9, Luke tells us, um, he introduces, saying, Jesus addressed this parable, he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. He, ad- he is addressing this story to people who thought they were self-righteous, that, that their own actions or something about them was what made them right before God. And it says, and that because of that, they treated others with contempt. And he goes on in verses 11 and 12 and says, well, what does it mean to treat others with contempt? Well... He starts praying and the words start flowing. And he says, God, it's like a non-prayer actually. He says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners and unjust, uh, adulterers, or even like this tax collector over there. And he's standing before God and his heart is on display as he starts uttering these words of his own pride in himself. In his despising contempt for people who are less than him. He fasts twice a week and gives tithes of all that he gets. He is a good man. And you're thinking, Brent, that is not attractive at all. That is really ugly. Why would I ever want to do that? Well, let me tell you about Madonna. Um, Obviously. Transition. Um, (laughs) Transition. In fact, I'm going to talk about Madonna, and I'm going to talk about MIT students, and I'm going to talk about me. and I'm going to show you why this is so attractive. Um, uh, Madonna was quoted in, in an interview with Vogue magazine in the 90s. Uh, in case y'all don't know, Madonna was kind of a big deal when I was growing up. She sings a few songs. Um, uh, and she says this, and it's kind of been fodder for pastors ever since, because it's just like, oh, yeah, that's really bad. She says... I have an iron will, and all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I'm always struggling with that fear. And I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being, and then I get to another stage and think that I'm mediocre and uninteresting, and I find a way to get myself out of that again and again. My drive in life is the horrible fear of being mediocre. That that's always been pushing me, pushing me. Even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I am somebody. My struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. And then just yesterday I was uh, reading online, I ran across this article that an MIT student wrote, and I actually think that a lot of you will relate to this. He said, I don't think many people understand what we mean when we say that MIT is hard. It's not just the workload. There's this feeling that no matter how hard you work, you can always be better. And as long as you can be better, you're not good enough. And because of that, there's stress and there's shame and there's insecurity. And sometimes there's hope. Sometimes there's happiness. Sometimes there's overwhelming loneliness. There's something to giving everything and always falling short. And then for my own story... I was in college. I was a sophomore at OU. And you could pretty well say that my life was summed up in being the best Brent that I could possibly be. And I lived toward that end. I joined clubs and I did things. And I was leaders in organizations. Um, I did all these things because I wanted people to see me as being good or at least in some way better than. And this was on full display when I was a sophomore and I was being interviewed for this thing called Crimson Club, which was a prestigious thing you could be a part of. Um, and as they're interviewing me, they say, what, what is a quote that has impacted your life the most? That's kind of a hard question on the spot. But here's the quote that I said. Mediocrity gives someone a chance to be better. And um, what's most sad about that is that I made it up on the spot. That that actually was just an overflow of my heart. That, like, I looked out at the world, when I looked at other people, I wanted to dominate them. I didn't want to be even average with them. I wanted to be better than them. And the idea that I was going to kind of be middle of the road and average set me on this path of trying to justify myself through my own actions. Through doing enough, through being good enough, through being in style enough, through having enough friends, through having the right friends. And like Madonna and like the MIT students and like the Pharisee in this story, and I'm guessing a good many of us in this room, this is what makes self-righteousness so devilish and so attractive. Is that in the self-righteous system, you have a chance to justify yourself. That you think, I can be good enough. Or I can at least be better than. Or prettier than. Or more fashionable than. Or more popular than. Or listen to cooler bands than. Or be hipper than. And what it does is it lowers the standard from God and His sense of perfection... And it lowers the standard of the people around you. And that feels very attainable. Because if you can't add up to God's standard, if you can't keep kind of this ultimate perfection, then at least you can be better than the people around you. And we love that because it gives us something that's attainable. And I get to rely on myself. In some ways, that feels super amazing. It feels really amazing. It feels really good sometimes. And that's why we do it. But in some very real and very related ways... It is destroying us. It is destroying you. Let me explain why. Because when you rely on yourself, you are responsible when the standard changes. Think with me for just a minute. Most of you were... Were smart, or at least toward the top end of your class in high school. Otherwise, you wouldn't be at TU. You achieved or you succeeded at some level or some teacher gave you the right recommendation or a school counselor, and so you're here at TU. And so, think about high school. You are better than most of the people around you or smarter than most people around you or more involved or something. And then when you get to college, you realize, and there's that terrible moment for some of you when you realize that the standard has changed. All of a sudden, I'm around... People who were higher achievers than I was. And people who are smarter than I am. And when the standard changes your sense of self-worth, if it's tied to that, it changes also. All of a sudden you begin to feel worse and worse about yourself. and, And what you once were is being cracked and broken. And you begin to be destroyed from the inside out. But another way that self-righteousness destroys us is what we found just a few moments ago that was so attractive is that you have to rely on yourself. You have to rely on yourself. If that is the system you're choosing to go through life with and to make yourself feel justified or feel like you're worthwhile or that you weren't a waste of cells or, or your mom and dad's money, you have to rely on yourself. It's all you've got. But listen to what this gets you. Listen to what Madonna said a little closer. She said, even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I am somebody. She made it in many, many ways. She was a somebody. She was extremely popular, extremely wealthy, extremely well-known. She says, my struggle has never ended and probably never will. The MIT student said, there's this feeling that no matter how hard you work, you can always be better. And as long as you can be better, you're not good enough. I don't really have to ask you if you've ever felt not good enough. I just have to ask you, in how many different ways are you feeling not good enough? And the reason that we constantly are feeling like we are not good enough, that we don't add up to some standard... It's because we've gotten the wrong standard. We've decided in some way or another that we're going to rely on ourselves for our self-worth. And I want you to see the weight of this. That your joy and your happiness and your future are completely up to you. And that ought to scare the heck out of you. That ought to give you great fright because all of you know what goes through your mind. And you know how inadequate you feel at some of the things that you're trying to do well. And you know what it's like to look in the mirror and feel unloved or feel not pretty. And when you get a test back and it's not what you thought it should be, and it's what you feared it would be. And it's no wonder that some of us carry the anxiety that we do. Because you are looking to yourself to be your own savior. You're trying to be good enough, and that thought is destroying you. But finally, I want us to see that there is this beautiful and yet difficult and freeing prayer that the tax collector offers. This parable isn't a parable about praying. It's a parable about righteousness. And in verse 13, Jesus shows us and gives us this picture of a tax collector, this terrible person. And he gives us an ear into his prayer it says, the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He sensed his own unworthiness. He sensed that he wasn't good enough, that he wasn't clean enough, that he wasn't part of the accepted kind of in religious society. And so it says that he stood far off. Whereas the Pharisee, it said, stood by himself. He was trying to avoid the unclean. The tax collector knows himself to be that, that kind of person, and he, he self consciously removes himself from this very kind of religious scene at the altar there. And Ken Bailey says, and I, I think he's probably really right if you think, uh, as we see what's going on here, that he says at that prayer, when he says, God be merciful to me, a sinner is actually better translated. I don't, I'm don't. i not trying to get you all to doubt the Bibles and the translation you have in front of you. There's just nuances in the Greek language. He said it's, it's probably better translated, Lord, make atonement for me. Now imagine this picture. That here is this altar where, where this animal is being sacrificed and there are these religious people around it who are uh, thanking God or not thanking God. I mean, that guy was praying to himself, the Pharisee. And imagine this tax collector, this bad guy off to the side... And his only prayer is, God, let that atonement, let that animal's blood cover me. Because I am a sinner. I am not good. I am not a good person here. And it's very difficult, but also very freeing to pray that. And it's difficult for each one of us to finally come to the point in our life where we're willing and ready to say, God, I I can't do this. I can't be good enough. It's difficult to say that because we have to believe it. And the longer that you try to hold on to something about you that you've done or that you're doing, the longer you try to hold on to one of those things to some way feel good about yourself or at least better than others, then you can't pray that prayer it becomes really hard to call yourself a sinner who needs someone to cover that if you can't believe that. And so it's difficult to say that. It feels like death to admit to someone. This is why we have such hard times actually confessing sin to one another. It's because when the words come out of your mouth and you say, I don't have anyone to blame for that except for me, it feels like part of us is dying. And it is. It is. And it's the best thing that could happen to you. Because though it is difficult, it's extremely free. Because you can finally admit who you actually fear that you are. You can finally look at the junk in your life, all of those thoughts of shame and of guilt that you have, and you can finally look at it and say, Golly, that's me. That's me. God, I need help. And if you've ever prayed that before, if you've ever thought that before, you know what it's like. That it is like chains falling off of you. That you can finally be open. You can finally be known. And you can finally stop trying to impress somebody. And I would suggest that you will never be able to do that with other people and stop trying to live for them or to live for yourself until you can stand before God and know that He looks at you and He knows you and He loves you and He forgives you. Until that happens to you, you will live in this life paralyzed by the fear of who you think you might be. Look, uh, you've come to TU, and everywhere you turn, there's someone better and prettier and smarter, more achieved. Uh, who's going to throw you for a loop in some way, and this has been really hard for some of you. Really, really hard for some of you. I, I listened to you tell me that much, and I want to. I want us to end by thinking about this story of what you, what will happen when your standard is wrong. I've got a friend who lives in Charlottesville Virginia and he was telling a story about um, playing in the soccer in the park one day and he said he was having a career day. He was out there and he was dominating this game that he had a hat trick he scored three goals in the first half. In the second half he could hear the people on the other team, Um, Talking about how to isolate him And keep him from getting the ball And he could hear uh, in the huddle of his own team How everyone on his team Was wanting to figure out how to get him the ball So he might score more He goes on to say Finally my son and my daughter Who were 13 and 10 Looked at me and said Dad you can't play with us anymore You're too good You see he He was dominating that game He was doing really well He had a hat trick in the first half, and his standard was his 13-year-old and 10-year-old kids. And he was doing really well as long as uh, he had the wrong standard. And he goes on to say this. He says, it was awesome. (laughs) It felt great. He says, I was great against a 10-year-old, but if I was playing against the UVA soccer team, I'd look foolish. But that's really how we walk through life, isn't it? Measuring ourselves by lesser standards in order to feel successful and important. You see, that is why the gospel is good news. Because it is telling us that life isn't a competition. The gospel of Jesus tells you that life isn't a competition. Because you can stand before God and then you can stand before others. But you can stand before God... And know that it is not about what you've done. It is not about how good you've been. You haven't been good enough. It's not about how well you perform. It is about what Jesus has done for you. And it is about what Jesus is doing right now for you. And if you're a non-Christian... I want to give you this opportunity to get off of that destructive path of living for yourself and living for others and their approval it is a path that will kill you it will lead to your end it will destroy you from the inside because you are your own savior and if you're a christian then i want to encourage you that jesus is enough what He has done for you in His perfect life, and His atoning death, and His resurrection for your new life, that is enough for you. And to the extent that you believe that, you will stop looking for your self-worth and your identity and the people around you and the things that you do in some level of your performance and perfection. And I want to tell you that if you do that, it will kill you. It will ruin you. But Jesus offers us a way out of that pray that you would believe it let's pray god i pray that you would make this true in our hearts right now i pray that you would apply it to us that that in christ we might be justified like that tax collector help us as uh, even as we sing this last song to believe it in jesus name we pray amen